I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. The intriguingly bold idea at the center of Richard Power's new novel is this. What if science made it possible to experience and experience at a neural level the emotions of someone you love? What if you could slip into a space where your own spontaneous brain activity could be measured and blended in a way with the emotional patterns of someone else? And what if that soothed the deepest grief of a child who was missing his mother? Richard Powers is the author of, among many other novels, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Overstory. His new novel is Bewilderment, and he joins us from Tennessee. Welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to have you, Richard. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure being back. I thought about starting with the remarkable science of the novel, but but I have to say I have to begin with this boy because this is such a compelling portrait of a singular, loving, troubled, extraordinary boy. And and I wondered a lot about how you thought about balancing, you know, this very captivating science with creating portraits of humans who are affected by that science. I'd love to know the way you weigh that. Mm. Yeah, it's a terrific place to start in talking about this book, because in fact, I think I weigh it differently in this book than I have in my previous 12 books. That is the relationship between the discursive explorations of science and technology and their effects on contemporary life, and the intimate narrative psychological exploration of the central protagonists of my story. This book shifts the balance, I think, in favor of the latter. Um, It's a very different book, kind of book, from the previous novel, The Overstory, which was... uh, over 500 pages. It focused on nine characters. It unfolded over a couple of centuries. This book is really a chamber work uh, compared to that sort of symphonic uh, form that I was trying to write in in the previous book. And it's a chamber work that focuses very intimately on two people, uh, Theo Byrne, an astrobiologist in his late 30s, uh, who is widowed about two years before the start of the story. And his unusual, intense, uh, loving, but very troubled and angry son, Robin, nine-year-old son, Robin. And in this book, I think, the, the explorations, both of Theo's field of astrobiology and the neuroscience that sets the plot in motion, uh, as you so wonderfully described in your introduction, take a little bit of a backseat to this turbulent but intense love story between a father and his son uh, at a troubled moment in American history. And it really was layering up these two lost boys that was most important to me when creating this book. And for that, I drew on uh, many people who I have crossed paths with in my life, but also very deeply on on my own life uh, and uh, on imaginative projections uh, in, in, into stories that I'd only read about. 
It's interesting to hear you describe this because the science, as it often is in your novels, is pretty dazzling. And yet you, I hear you saying, you knew going in that the the glamour in some ways mm. of the science could not overtake the human story because we'd be left with the glamour of the science. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I, I um, This book grew out of the overstory. The overstory uh, tells a, a several interconnected narratives of people and uh, non-human characters, trees, um, and explores this idea that we really are in need of of a change in in cultural consciousness. We need a new way of thinking about ourselves uh, on the earth, uh, not as something separate from the non-human, but as an integrated neighbor uh, situated in a real place, not one that we're trying to master and dominate and separate ourselves from. And in bewilderment, I really wanted to pursue that question of what that would look like, this change in way of thinking, uh, this moving away from human autonomy and mastery and separate exceptionalism and, and toward a kind of condition of interbeing. And the way I finally realized that I could do that is by centering the story on a child uh, and keeping the focus on that sensibility of this exceptional boy who is traumatized, as so many children are, by the degradation of the earth, the obvious disruption of the living systems that we've set in motion, we humans. Uh, And it seemed to me that if I were to try to bring in the glamour of the science, as you describe it, that it would it would diminish in some way that that personal urgency, that the, the story about what, you know, how a, a boy who feels things so intensely can survive a culture like ours, and also how this bewildered parent, uh, uh, this single father uh, who admits to, you know, to, to not really knowing uh, the, the secrets of, of proper parenting but who would do anything in his power to protect this boy, uh, you know, to, to keep a focus on his anxieties, his hopes and his fears, and, and, and not to travel too far uh, into asking the reader to, uh, to explore uh, uh, other disciplines that change the way that we, we, we look at the earth from the outside. I'm going to come back to that flow from overstory because I want to I want to develop that a little more, but I don't want to miss this thread of what you're saying about this boy Robin and his father, and his father knows that his son is what he calls a pocket universe that he can never mm. fully expect to, but to know. But he also knows that the diagnoses that medicine has given him are inadequate, and. Um, he says every one of us is an experiment and we don't even know what the experiment is testing. And you've done this 
this kind of high wire act I think of as as a boy who's hurting, who possesses these gifts and this special knowledge, and yet he's still a boy. I mean, we never mm. lose this sense that he's a child. So, so I'd like to know how you'd describe Robin, the boy. Yeah. He's capable of great joy and, and uh, exuberance, um, but he's also capable of, of violent rage. Um, he's intense. He's a kind. He is a kind of exaggerated incarnation of the black and white intensity of childhood. Uh, he's nine years old, so he's right on that threshold of leaving that, you know, that condition of total, you know, or, or greater innocence, sweetness, naivete, and, and moving into that. Uh, pre-adolescence, which is darker and more uh, more rippled, um, he has a, a, a lot of unusual characteristics with regard to uh, focus and attention. He he will not focus on things that don't interest him, but he has endless capacity of focusing on things for which he feels a personal urgency. He has that kind of um, pantheism of childhood. Mm-hmm. He does take the more than human world to be as sacred as the human world. And this is also, I think, uh, you know, drawing on my memories of childhood where the backyard was a kind of uh, endless pathway to, you know, to... Uh, God, uh, you know, in in all the living creatures that were out there, and and how, you know, the, the, that that biophilia, I think that as E.O. Wilson calls it, that that children feel so intensely. Um, but uh, he, you know, he has lost his mother two years before the story starts. He is eager to rehearse a past that he feels is disappearing inside him. And uh, it's, it's that combination of personal loss, the, the purity and the intensity of, of his own temperament, and the larger eco-trauma that I think is such a feature of, of childhood right now, the, the realization uh, that there, that, that, they are living in a world uh, that has been catastrophically dislodged by adults, and it's and and it's beyond the comprehension of Robin how this could be. And he asks these uncompromising questions to his father, demanding an answer as to how the adults could have let this happen. I think this brings us back then to Overstory because. You know, that novel, it's this wonderful exploration of trees and communication and science, and it explores, I think, why humans seem to be so ignorant about the exceptionalism of the natural world. And that is something that seems to diminish or that we let go of as adults. We possess it. I think you're showing us anew how we possess it 
as children. And yet, many, many people, myself included, kind of lose, we reconnect with that maybe every now and then when we get out into nature, but we let that go somewhat acceptingly. This novel seems to to deepen some of those questions. What would you say? Yeah. I, to some extent, there may be a diminishment of that of that feeling of pantheism or animism that we have as children uh, that mm-hmm. comes simply with growing older and gaining experience and you know prag- pragmatic uh, competence. Uh, but I also think that the reason that we lose this uh, as we grow older is a cultural that, that, you know, the greatest impact on anyone's thought is almost invariably the thinking of the people around them. And children are just coming into that game. You know, they're just learning how to read other people uh, how to you know to to do this kind of extrapolation and uh, uh, interpolation of other people's motives and and we adults don't you know we're, we we're deeply colonized by the thought patterns of the people around us, which of course derive from our culture and since we are are living in a culture that is itself deeply colonized by certain sets of beliefs uh, that we can no longer see, uh, it's easy for us to lose track of these as actual chosen beliefs or actual, uh, you know, actual uh, consensual habits of thinking um, that don't necessarily have to be. And those habits in, in the culture under examination and bewilderment are things like uh, the idea that that the rest that that the non-human world is here simply as a set of resources for our own human program, the idea that only humans are intelligent and that only humans have interesting, surprising behavior or agency, uh, and attached to that sense of the separate uh, reality of humans, uh, a culture that emphasizes individual individualism a kind of commodity-mediated meaning uh, and, and competition as a formula for and a measure of success. Uh, all of these things that, 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 that knit together into this more or less you know, neoliberal position that we think of as almost inevitable historically, that's the kind of thing that Robin in, in his childlike ingenuousness is is really calling into question and theo you know who who sees the truth of the accusation that this culture uh, you know has has created such devastation and, and and such disruption of the rest of the living world doesn't really have a good answer for his boy but you can't you can't turn away from you know the question of an earnest nine-year-old you're also in what I would imagine is the um, perplexing territory of a child's grief. I mean, the father, Theo, is mourning the loss of his wife, 
and this child is mourning the loss of his mother, and you are conceptualizing two I mean they obviously they share this this loss and this grief, but you're also conceptualizing two different kinds of grief and I wondered if you'd explain how you thought about that and how you tried to understand what it means for a child to lose a parent. Mm, yeah. The novel is told in the first person by Theo. Uh, and it's told a little bit after uh, the course of events uh, that we read about uh, over the length of the novel. So there's a little, there, there, there's, a, there's some reflective distance as he's telling the story of, of what happened over the course of one year between uh, he and his son as he enters his son into this uh, unusual experiment that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, his wife, Alyssa, uh, has died two years before, that is, uh, when, when Robin was seven. Uh, Alyssa, we come to, to, to learn about her only through the indirect memories of Robin and Theo. And so the book becomes a kind of ghost story. She, she haunts the periphery of the book. Uh, she's there in an almost hallucinatory presence for Theo from time to time in the story. And of course, Robin is urgent, you know, urgently trying to recreate her uh, by making his father rehearse and repeat old memories, by making his father pull up on uh, the computer old uh, YouTube videos of his mother. His mother was uh, an animal rights activist. Uh, and the circumstances of her death uh, are rather painful. And, and, and Theo ends up uh, having to confess them to Robin in the course of the novel, uh, while still disguising some of the essential truths of, of, of that event. Um, the, the loss of a parent by a seven-year-old uh, must be one of, you know, one of the most fundamental and profound losses and, and derangements of expectation that, that a person could live through. Uh, and that is in part why Theo resists uh, the doctor's attempts to medicalize his son into... Uh, to treat his his son uh, by assigning a diagnostic category that doesn't entirely fit and prescribing medications that may or may not help to calm the boy, but don't address this fundamental trauma. Theo himself doesn't know how to address it. Uh, there are very few things that help uh, to, to appease Robin and calm, calm him down. But one of the things that seems to work uh, is... In place of the bedtime stories that he might have gotten in the past from his mother, Theo takes Robin onto these interplanetary visits, drawing on the, the, the discoveries of his own field of astrobiology. He creates and then populates various planets around the universe that he and Robin can go visit. And... That's a, that's a way for these two to travel together, to bond and to imagine themselves into other places. It's a way of raising this larger question that so preoccupies Robin, namely, you know, what does life look like beyond the human? 
but it's also a way simply for the two of them to be together and express their own hopes and fears projectively through these uh, through these imaginative visits and, and travels. It's such an, an interesting phrase you used when you were talking about what it means for a child to lose a parent. You said derangement of expectations. You know, yeah. that sounds, it sounds clinical in one way, but derangement also gives us kind of a, a hint of the disorder of this. Well, Why sure. did you think about it like that? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it becomes clear fairly quickly in the course of reading the book that the trauma that Robin feels because he cannot locate and find and resurrect and reconnect with his mother it is not entirely separable from the trauma that he feels, the eco-trauma that he feels, as he begins to discover that this beautiful world may not be reliable or uh, reachable or solid in the way that it should be. Um, his, his panic when he discovers uh, how rapidly species are going extinct is is obviously an, an extension of his first trauma of, of lo- losing his mother. Uh, the, the, the two are equivalent kinds of terrors uh, at different levels, one at the, at the, at the completely personal and one in the, in the shared and the societal. We are losing security and safety we don't know how to connect uh, ourselves to this larger story. And, you know, the, the, the expectations that a child has of safety and certainty and protection are, are blown away for Robin, both by his personal circumstances and by everything that he discovers uh, about what, what the adults have done uh, to to the world that's beyond human. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a show about big books and bold ideas. Richard Powers is here, and his new novel is titled Bewilderment. In the introduction, I I described this capability, I guess, to slip into a space where your own brain activity is measured, and then it's I guess the only way I could think of this was blended with the emotional patterns of someone else. But I, I want to hear your description of how this fMRI machine and the program that Robin enters, how it works. I, I know you have a better description than I did, but well, no, and it's interesting because the book is in the vein of speculative fiction. So mm-hmm. this technique of decoded neurofeedback draws on an existing set of techniques that actually have been around for more than a decade. Uh, I first read about them back in 2013, uh, where they really caught my imagination and, and 
started, I think, my first thinking about this, writing this book. So that's, you know, eight years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it works a little like this. Uh, one person is uh, engaged in learning a task or uh, experiencing uh, a, a, a set of, you know, sensory inputs or uh, introspecting on a certain feeling and emotional state. And a portion of that person's brain is imaged in real time in the process of being in that emotional state or accomplishing that task. And that recording, that, that real-time film of brain activity is stored as, as, a, as, a, as a file, as a large data structure. A second person is then scanned in real-time and software compares their neural activity to the neural activity of the original recording. And through a series of feedback cues, almost like blind man's bluff, you know, where people call out, oh, you're getting warmer, or you're, you're getting colder, you're closer, or you're farther away. The software cues the second person every time their brain activity starts to approximate the patterns in the original stored recording. And little by little, the second person, by following those cues and seeing what it takes to simply inhabit uh, a brain state that is scored as being very close to the, to the target, learns how to be in that brain state. So it's old-fashioned feedback, but using this kind of new power to look under the hood, to look inside the actual uh, neural functioning. And as, as, uh, as I said, I extend this field, which is this, this set of techniques which are still in their infancy, and, and make them more powerful than they are. Uh, and it, it's, you know, it's not, not clear to me whether the kinds of things that happen in this book are one year away or five years away or that they could never happen or never, never be uh, developed at all. Uh, but in the book, Robin, using these, got this guided feedback, learns to control his own brain and learns to emulate these these recordings and you know it's this in, in a strange way it's it's this solution to the old uh philosophical question of you know what would it feel like to be someone else to be uh something else and to take part in uh a kind of direct empathetic uh, resonance with the, with another sensibility, and that's why this technique in the book, uh, uh, the characters start to refer to it as an empathy machine. The scientist who leads this work, who is working on this experiment, tells Theo, Robin's father. We're testing whether averaged fingerprints of the eight core emotions are distinct enough to be recognized by trainees who are taught to match them. It's the most alluring idea to think that we could, I don't know, be back in touch in the 
well, in the imagination, in the mind of somebody we love who's gone, there are a mm-hmm. lot of ethical complexities to this. No, sure. sure there are. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, it's almost forbidden territory uh, mm-hmm. uh, if, if pressed too far, but it, it is a deep-seated desire on our part. Uh, it, it, you know, so many novels hinge on this question in, in other forms, uh, le- less technologically mediated. But, you know, the ambiguity, when you look into another person's eyes, the ambiguity of their emotional state is what drives the whole drama of human bewilderment. Are they thinking, are they feeling what I think they're feeling? Are they feeling something that's commensurable and compatible with what I'm feeling? And so much of fiction circles back around this idea that each of us is truly alone because we can never escape the locked room of our own perceptions and leap over uh, and get into you know, uh, an actual direct apprehension of some other person and and this technology is used as a sort of tantalizing uh way to um to address that question but of course you know it's it's a bit mad as well because (laughs) the idea the idea that somehow we could take this fast track into another person's uh uh State, emotional state, affective state, uh, is so appealing and so forbidden uh, and so ambiguous that, of course, even in the course of this book, it has to run into trouble. And, and uh, you know, without giving too much away, uh, the, the climax, the crisis of the book is, is brought about because uh, of uh, trouble that, that, that the uh, procedure ultimately leads to. The, the other curious thing is we have ways of doing this more slowly and more crudely. And ultimately, art, writing, uh, narrative are all themselves crude versions of this empathy machine uh, to, to, to read this book to spend, you know, 250 pages imagining yourself into the emotional state of Theo and then into the emotional state of Robin is to do a kind of decoded neurofeedback in the same way that Robin does when he trains, to, to, to turn the pages and to say, who would I have to be to be sympathetic toward Theo? Who would I have to be to be able to take care of Robin or, or to, to understand what he's afraid of? And, and to, 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 to get your feedback from the page and to be reshaped by these characters is, is precisely uh, analogous to uh, uh, the, the, the empathy machine being described in the book. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's so true and validating about what is so euphoric about reading good literature. Um. My question, as I thought about the potential for science like this, I thought, who among the losses that I've endured, you know, grandparents, Mm. parents, so who would I choose for this? And I thought, yes, my paternal grandmother. And then I thought, 
my experience of her, you know, as a child and then a young adult and then an older adult and then she died, right. you know, ends at a certain place, would I, what would I learn about the things, you know, that made up my grandmother's kind of emotional territory that I wasn't aware of as a child or as a young adult because that was our relationship and that's different than if I had been her peer. And, you know, would that be distorting in some ways of my perception about how wonderful my grandmother was? You know, it it was the kind of the the fear of of the knowledge. Does that make sense? That's, it's fantastic what you just said because it it's it's so perfect an illustration of how the yearning to know and to be connected to another person is constantly doubly thwarted. One because we are here and they are there and we can, we we will always have the view from here and we can never completely participate in the view from there but also too because the view from there and the view from here are both themselves moving targets you know um we 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 want you know we we want to uh you know so deeply to escape our own conditions of isolation and loneliness and to be united in love but everyone who has ever felt love for another human being knows how difficult how impossible it is to sustain as both ends of that reciprocal relationship are being buffeted and you know rocked about by events in time and, and following their own trajectories uh, but it, it's it's also very sobering when you talk about that because even in the absence of the kind of technology that I describe in the book, our baselines for holding on to other people and to knowing them and connecting to them are themselves so technologically mediated by, by technologies that through some act of recording, fix that moving target. So, you know, all, not, not only Instagram and, uh, you know, other social media, uh, but photographs themselves and, you know, uh, audio recordings thems- themselves or video uh, or even writing, you know, the, they're, you know, the, 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 the great, the, the great sadness, but also the great joy and, and possibility of, of human connection is that we catch a fleeting glimpse from time to time. And you know, th- there, there is no permanent record that we can hold on to. Mm-hmm. I was reading Bewilderment at the same time that I was listening to Robin Wall Kimmerer's braiding sweetgrass, and it was doing that ahead of a, a trip into the Boundary Waters uh, wilderness in Minnesota. And I just, she captures this, this awe and the majesty in, in some, in, 
in granular detail and in, you know, in, in its hugeness as well, in the same way that I feel like you do. And I, I wondered if she's someone that you find common cause with, whether you've, you've read her work, familiar with it. I read Braiding Sweetgrass twice while working on the overstory. I ah, okay. listened to it first, and, and she reads the book. And I listened to I it know, on, a long, wonderful. Yeah, oh. on a long car drive. And I had to pull over more than once because she just reduced me to tears. I couldn't drive. <laughs> and, you, you, I mean, you put your finger on it. She, she has the uncanny ability to connect personal wisdom to large scientifically inflected knowledge, but also to uh, the the culture of indigenous uh, understanding uh, and to braid these together into uh, the the most marvelous thing. Her, Her message has to do with the reciprocal interdependence of creation, but her writing participates in the quality of, of interdependence and interbeing that she advocates for in the, in, the, in the book. I also read the book on the page and took great inspiration and instruction from it as I was telling my own story about interbeing and interdependence and uh, in, in the in the overstory and uh, creating narratives that try to weave the human together with the more than human, she was very definitely a spiritual godmother for that book. After overstory came out, I I received uh, an email from her, and it was just you know like like getting communication from a mythic person. Uh, and it, my my initial response, actually, when I saw her name in my inbox was, uh-oh, she's going to sue me for intellectual property <laughs> violation. You know, I borrow so heavily from her in the overstory, you know, but uh, it was, it, it was um, a kind of, you know, just a, 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 a touching base from two different directions of, of two writers who uh, were, were very much intent on sharing uh, a, a single vision in fiction and in nonfiction, I will say when I began to work on bewilderment, uh, I haven't I haven't told Robin Wall Kimmerer this yet, but when I was looking for a name for my central character, I did uh, uh, borrow from his uh, wow. d- distant godmother. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, um, I love the fact that you use the word reciprocal because, you know, one of those ideas through braiding sweetgrass is the reciprocity. I mean, she has that chapter about the gift economy of the of a pecan right. grove. Right. It's just transformational. The same way Overstory was in it's hard to do this too. I, I it's it's hard to change a worldview. But overstory and braiding sweetgrass, I think, accomplish that. And for many people that I've heard who have read the two, even together, apart, 
the books are in conversation with each other, which is which is really wonderful. Glad I asked. It's, it's marvelous um, to hear. But in in bewilderment, you see, I I tried to dramatize the story of a boy who learns how to enter into this state of reciprocity and who learns to master his own ego and his own fear sufficiently to feel the kinds of connections beyond the self that I think we will need to learn collectively together if, if we want to stick around this place. Uh, so mm-hmm. that journey in, into a culture of reciprocity, the, you know, bewilderment is a tech to, to, to at least begin to illustrate uh, what that sensibility might look like in a person who must grow into it. I mean, this brings us back to what you were saying earlier about not seeing the natural world only as a resource, that there is reciprocity in this relationship, and we've lost, we've lost sight of that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of an odd uh, assumption that's deep, deep in our culture that we can somehow go it alone, mm-hmm. and that if we take this kind of uh, functional and uh, procedural view of um, the world that uh, we can we can escape the vicissitudes of living systems and somehow create an economy that's autonomous and controllable it's a, it's a marvelous fantasy but i think we are learning every day now that it is a fantasy and that the costs of trying to pursue that independence from the, all those living systems that sustain us is, is coming due. And, uh, you know, the, the, the great cataclysms that we've set, that we've unleashed, and that form the kind of dramatic backdrop for bewilderment are precisely caused by believing that we can take this kind of uh, factory view of the earth and, and turn it, you know, turn, t- turn our, our, our culture into this kind of um, uh, completely uh, autonomous extraction machine. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmarish idea, and it's, it's doomed to failure. I mean, the, 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 the ways in which we depend upon land and other creatures... Uh, are are endless, and uh, the 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 culture that we've created that that treats our food supplies as series of factories, I think, is is starting to break down. The last time we spoke, and I think that was about Overstory. Um, I think you told me that your goal was to hike through all. 800-something miles of the trails in the Great Smoky Mountains. Do I remember mm. that right? You, you still live near Indeed. there. I still do live near there. And uh, it's, been, it's been a constant and daily joy to live there. 
um, the, the, the Smokies are right in my backyard. I'm on the, uh, the boundary of uh, the National Park, which is the largest terrestrial national park uh, east of the, the Rockies. And one of the most biodiverse areas of its size in the world outside of the tropics, uh, I have been sustained daily by life in this place. And you can, you can see its fingerprint in, in bewilderment. The book opens in the Smokies and it closes in the Smokies. And that, that sense of the fecundity of life uh, in the Smokies is, is so much a part of um, what it is that I'm trying to describe uh, when, I, when I place the father and the son uh, in you know, outside of society and in into the living world again. I I have made a lot of headway on my um, trails, but I've also you know I I I've relaxed uh, the the project quite a bit too. You know, there there's it, there seems less point to me now in in hiking all the trails simply to say that I've mastered them and have checked them all off. <laughs> I, I I go back to the old trails again and again, depending on the season, the weather. Um, the, the you know the um, what what's in bloom at, at, on any given day, um, and while I I, I only have a, a fairly few number of trails left, it's it's difficult when you hike alone and and some you know some of these trails are are so long and so wild and so remote that um, you know to, to to hike them all as a single hiker uh, takes a, a lot of commitment and a lot of uh, overnights. But the, the point, again, is not to, to complete the map. The point is to be present in the place. And, you know, for, for me, uh, as Thoreau says, to, you know, to uh, drink the drink, uh, breathe the air, taste the fruits, uh, live in each season as it passes, and to resign myself to the influence of the earth, you know, to be on that trail, to be present to what is there on that day at that altitude in that weather and in that season. Um, and it's, it's been a different way of writing for me as well to be in close contact with place. Um, these last five years where I've lived in the Smokies have been the first time in my life where I've really lived where I live, if that makes any sense, you know, where, where I've, I've wanted to, to learn what, what the affordances of that geography can do with and to life. You know, I, the, the first time that I've made, a, you know, a point of, of learning the native species and the phenologies, you know, the timetables of, of the species where I live. Um, and, you know, my days that used to be organized around a really strict writing routine are now organized around how best to be in this place, you know, how best to be present and connected to all the desires of the land and the creatures uh, that are around me uh, and, and, and to uh, observe them and, and, and to take joy from them. And the writing follows, it grows out of that. 
I wondered if you have any kind of a, a ritual or something that you do at the beginning of a hike to, you know, to reinforce that presence, to, to lose the, I don't know, people call it the monkey mind, right? Just the swirling yeah. of thoughts and ideas. Yeah. So, so how do you do that? Well, I, I like to hike with trekking poles. You know, when I first saw them, I thought they looked silly, and I couldn't imagine my, ever using them myself. But they sure come in handy in the Smokies for a number of reasons. I mean, the trails themselves are, are, can, can often be rocky and root-filled and, and with a lot of uh, elevation gain and loss. Uh, but they also cross over streams and rivers and get over uh, a, a river by hopping rocks. Uh, a, a trekking pole can sure be helpful with that. But they also help me, as you say, to, to, to get into a, a kind of rhythm, a pace uh, that sets up its own sort of somatic meditative cycle, you know, moving my legs and moving the sticks. Uh, and, and, and just allowing my mind to to entrain on on that motion um, is the first state I think for for actually sort of sliding in uh, to to the the panorama of the trail. Hmm. Uh, one question about books. I, I wonder if um, there's a book on your bookshelves whatever they look like, that is more, I guess, dog-eared, more loved, more paged through than mm. others, and that you, that it exerts a kind of, I don't know, magnetism for you. You find yourself picking this one up and reflecting on it more often than others. I have done that over the years with with several books, um, both both fiction and poetry. And I've, I've come back at different times in my own life to, uh, to Proust um, and have enjoyed very different things in his long work uh, in search of lost time uh, in my 20s and in my 40s and, and now in my 60s. Um, there is something about the, the the voice uh, in Proust that that is both restless and resigned. Uh, you know these these sentences that keep peeling back and peeling back and circling inwards introspectively, but also outwards into social observation and into philosophy and, and lyric meditation. Um, that I I found hypnotic when I was young. And I find find very moving now as a, as an older man, as a man you know much older than Proust was when he died. Uh, so that's a, that's been a touchstone. Um, and I would I would put uh, the poetry of Yeats in the same category as um, uh, acts of of verbal construction and reflection that. Are, are so complex but pure, um, conflicted but resigned, 
you can come back to them in different seasons and at different ages and find a whole new um, conjunctions of emotion. Uh, and and it's it's that it's been lovely to have uh, made you know a, a fifty year journey with those poems. Thank you so much for the hour of conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you, Carrie. I enjoyed it. Richard Powers' new novel is titled Bewilderment. Now for some adventurous reading, and we're going to stay in those deep, dark, even magical forests that Richard Powers so admires. In fact, the concept of an enchanted forest goes back almost to the beginning of written storytelling. Shakespeare put one in a Midsummer's Night dream. J.K. Rowling put one just beyond the Hogwarts grounds where giant spiders and dragons resided. And Dante created one in the Divine Comedy. In this novel, we're in woods that lie just outside of a New England community, a place that represents both a warning for the disobedient and a refuge for the exiled. The author tells us that the forest here is intricate and shadowy, representative of a moral wilderness. Stop and look around. Take in the swaying tree canopy above you and the sharp scent of the evergreens in the chilly air. You are away from the watchful gaze of your neighbors, away from the rigid rules that govern this society. Our character has lived with the consequences of her actions and the constriction of judgment. In this forest, she feels released, even free, and it's here that she plans what she believes will be a liberated, happier life. So, adventurous reader... Do you know where we are and which novel we're in? Tweet me at Carrie NPR and share some other novels that are set in this place. <laughs>